I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, friends. Hey, hey. We're back. Been a little bit of a a break. I was finishing my MA dissertation, uh, and then I went straight into uh, Labour Party business which we won't go into here because since this is an escape from it for me, but Danny, I was wondering what's, has there been anything seismic that's happened in the world of films? I haven't really been following the film world. I haven't been following the film world. Well, there's been one seismic event, just the one. I don't know if you heard about Jeremy Renner's app. Jeremy Renner's app. You know Jeremy Renner? Yeah. I mean, I I hope, I would hope that you're going to say that his app is still going strong. Nah, mate. (laughs) (laughs) It had to take it down. What? It got targeted by trolls. Renner's app has been... The trolls have got it, got to it? <laughs> they got to it, man. They got to it bad. Wow. I mean, I knew that fake news was a problem and stuff, but I didn't know that the, the trolls had gotten to Jez's app. What has Jeremy Renner ever done my to fav- anybody? My Jeremy. Apart from just entertaining millions with his fantastic portrayal as Hawkeye. Yeah, and, and he was uh, uh, one of the... Like a born guy. One of was, the born guys. He was a born guy. He was Hansel and Hansel and Gretel witch, witch hunters. Yeah. He was the other guy in the Mission Impossible franchise. He's one of those guys in that. He's a spy or something. I think he might have like the worst agent in the world because he got Oscar. He kind of hit the big time with the Hurt Locker, right? He got Oscar nominated. Mm-hmm. And the following year, he got another Oscar nomination for the Town. So like he's a you know his career's going great. And then like he does all these big franchise movies, but he's like the seventh male lead in all of them. You know, it's like you're going to be in the new Bourne movie as in the not Bourne one, and you're going to be in the Mission Impossible movie, but. You'll be under Simon Pegg in the billing. It's like, and you're going to get that Marvel deal, but yeah. you'll be the guy who's in the Thor movie with the bow and arrow. It's like... It's a bit of an achievement to like be the lead in an action movie, but where the movie is named after somebody else. So you still feel like you're playing second fiddle. I know. Like, Poor it's guy. Like the whole movie that the audience is asking, where's Bourne? Yeah. So Jeremy Renner has an app um, or has an app. There's a company called EscapeX and they do influencer apps. So if your favorite influencer, you're enjoying them on Facebook, you're loving them on Instagram, you go wild for their tweets. Uh, but you just need more. You just need more content. You need more of it because when you log into Instagram, there's all other, there's like other stuff on there as well. But what you want is a platform where you only get the stuff from your favorite influencer. Sure. So Jamie Renner, who's adding strings to his bow, no Hawkeye pun intended, <laughs> uh, having become a uh, pop star as we discussed previously. Sure. And, and now now also a social media influencer. So he teams up with his company to get the Jeremy Renner app. My understanding of it is that it's basically like Instagram, but just Jeremy Renner posts and his fans can like go on there and like talk to, to, to Jeremy directly. Like a Reddit AMA. Yeah. And you can buy credits 
on the app with real money in order to boost your post to the top and then Jeremy or um, possibly some people <laughs> working for him uh, will reply to you because they always reply to like the top posts. Right, okay. So you've got a burning question for Jeremy Renner if you just spend enough money, he'll answer. Yeah, if you really, really want to know something, something about Jeremy Renner or you just want to say how much you love him and then to have him say cool uh, in, in response, then that's a way, that's a way to do it. Unfortunately, the trolls did find his app. Oh, I think no. they bombarded it with false messages. You can set up profiles on there, but there's no uh, restriction from setting up a profile as Jeremy Renner. So people were creating fake Jeremy Renners. And oh, no. There's multiplying Jeremy Renners. For oh, God. Things. Uh, Jeremy um, shut things down uh, a little while ago on the 4th of September with the following post, uh, which is for some reason in a kind of Comic Sans font, which looks quite funny. <laughs> and it just says goodbye at the top. And he says, this app has jumped the shark, literally. Due to clever individuals that were able to manipulate ways to impersonate me and others within the app, I have asked EscapeX, the company that runs this app, to shut it down immediately and refund anyone who has purchased any stars over the last 90 days. That's the currency that lets you right, contact right. Jeremy. What was supposed to be a place for fans to connect with each other has turned into a place that is everything I detest and can't or won't condone. My sincere apologies uh, for this to have not turned out the way it was intended. To all the super fans who have supported me with your words or encouragement, amazing art, stories, and time shared on the app, a genuine thank you. And I hope to see you on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook, on the many, many other massive websites. Apple Plus and... <laughs> and uh, Disney Plus, and my new TV show, Hawkeye and Hawkgirl, whatever. <laughs> uh, poor Renner. Poor, poor Renner. Poor Jezza. Um, sorry, Sam, I was... Um, I'm so sad thinking about Jeremy Renner's app that I've actually forgotten why I'm here. That is that is, that is a that what, is what, what, are, what are we doing here? Um, I'll tell you what we're doing. It's basically the same thing we've been doing for the previous 197 episodes of this podcast. Um, this is a podcast about uh, you, Danny Moran. You're a Confederate veteran and a bounty hunter with a soft heart. Uh, you often donate your earnings to the needy and you help prisoners if they've been wrongly accused. You carry a shortened Winchester model 1892 rifle called the Mayor's Leg that you can draw and fire with blazing speed. Um, although you're a bounty hunter, you don't just chase and capture men on wanted posters. You also settle a family feud, free unjustly jailed or sentenced men, uh, help an amnesia victim recover his memory, and find missing husbands, sons, fathers, a fiancé, a suitor, a daughter who'd been captured many years earlier by Indians, an army deserter, a pet sheep, and even Santa Claus, uh, and this variety, as well as your pursuit of justice and not just money, contributes to our podcast attraction and popularity. Except for a few episodes at the beginning of the show, you ride a horse named Sam Foster, is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the CBS television series Wanted, Dead or Alive, starring Steve McQueen, which aired for three seasons between 1958 and 1961. Instead, this is just a podcast in which we talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, a bounty hunter with a heart of gold and a gun full of bullets, <laughs> Danny Moran. That's me. That's me. We're back. We're on the rack. We're ovulating. On this week's episode, we'll review Quentin Tarantino's penultimate film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which shows the director breaking new formal ground by not using the N-word once and only having about nine shots of people's feet. The enfant terrible has grown up. <laughs> Plus, I review Bait, the debut film of Mark Jenkins about a Cornish hometown being ignored and exploited by the bloody, snooty, middle-class city-dwelling Londoners. It's a film so timely 
and makes Brexit the uncivil war look like fucking the voyage de la lune. Plus, we discussed the news that Richard Linklater is about to out-boyhood boyhood with a new project with an even longer shooting schedule and wonder how British auteur Ben Wheatley will liven up the Tomb Raider franchise. All of which should give me just enough time to tell you about my take on the recently announced Face Off remake. I've got a great pitch, okay? In my version, Jonathan Pye switches faces with Boris Johnson and then we finally got a bloody sensible grown-up in charge and he just sorts, sorts it all out. And Britain, and indeed the world, enters a, a golden age. That sounds really good. And the Jonathan Pye videos continue to be successful, yeah. even though Boris Johnson's doing them now. Okay, yeah. Because like Jonathan Pye is really someone who's defined by his uh, reaction to circumstances, right? So I think it would be quite creatively interesting to put him in power. Yeah. Because what's he, is he still going to be complaining about everything all the time? Or is he, you know, is he getting stuff done? No, he's getting stuff done because he's a bloody he's sensible. The, he's the Jed Bartlett. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've often said this. <laughs> I saw him the other day in the flesh, just walking about. Jonathan an angel. Pye. Yeah, yeah. Was not he, ranting. Not ranting, ranting, himself ranting. Or, or into a camera. <laughs> he's probably thinking about it, but he was just walking a down. Men- the, a mental rant. It was a mental rant. I could see it in his eyes. He was ranting. <laughs> exciting correspondence from new new people while we're away our fan base has just uh grown and grown we're like an artist who gets big after they've died you know yeah <laughs> we have to take a step back we get we got big while we were hibernating exactly so uh toby mckenzie barnes tweeted in to say been loving working my way through your pod backlog was wondering with two new party leaders declared so recently which film would you say matches up best to the leader of each uk political party so he's referring to the ascension of Boris Johnson to leader of the Conservative Party and also Joe Swenson, who became leader of the Liberal Democrats. But this is quite an old comment now because we haven't recorded in a while. Yeah, this is like two months old. But... Two months old. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still, I'm sure Toby is still waiting with he, bated he, breath to, absolutely. to hear what we had to say on this topic. I uh, took to a bit sort of a tangent to this question. I want to know what Boris Johnson's favorite film was. Yeah, you took the question and you ran with it. You didn't I answer it directly. It. Didn't yeah. answer it directly. But there was an interesting uh, interview he gave during the Conservative leadership campaign where he said that one of his favorite films is The Pink Panther. And then when he's asked about what is one of his favorite movie scenes, apparently the multiple retribution killings at the end of The Godfather. So one of his favorite movies is about a bumbling, incompetent moron who for some reason is never fired or faces any consequence for his actions. And his favorite scene is when the guy ruthlessly dispenses with anyone who opposes him. This is like, you can make this shit up. He's very, he is very, very on the nose. Honestly, this led me to look up what Jez's favorite movies were, Jeremy yeah. Corbyn. And he's like, in this interview, he said he loves Casablanca and The Great Gatsby. So he loves a movie about a guy putting his personal needs yeah. after uh, the needs of the many. A principled guy, a self-sacrificing and, guy. And uh, The Great Gatsby is a guy who, you know, had, had a really good party. So... <laughs> <laughs> 
at all tracks. Yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, he likes the classics. He does. I couldn't, there was no information about Joe Swinson. She's so inconsequential. No one asked her what her favorite film was. Well, that's a, that's a huge oversight. We yeah. should have, we should have sent her a message <laughs> ourselves to try to find that out. Uh, but like this, when I was thinking about answering this question, it was kind of like a lens that I've started applying more and more to politics is uh, seeing politicians as like grown up school children. They, stri- they strike me as that like to an increasing degree. And I know that it's like a very British thing really to see people as defined by their schooling. But that is partly because like a significant proportion of all of our prime ministers have come from the same school, yeah. which is the one that Boris Johnson attended. But like I, I do feel that the Joe Swinson has a kind of school like girl head girl sort of yeah yeah general vibe to her and boris johnson is uh someone who's very obviously defined um by his school years i think there's like i don't know i don't i don't actually know where joe swinson went to school but i do think there's something about the sort of public school mindset that is not only like when you're born to rule you know you're sort of taught from like this very young age that um that you belong in the elite of society and you should be running things and i think it means that you kind of mentally don't actually have to grow up because when you were eight years old you were already told that you're ready to run the country you know what i mean <laughs> yeah yeah so they're, they're just stuck in that in, uh in that world so i think like whatever movies represent these people would be ones about like annoying children yeah um uh so i wasn't quite sure where to go with like the annoying posh kid for boris uh maybe something like the history boys i mean i know they're all sort of nice yeah you know kids they're not that are they how posh are they not especially not well they're all trying to get into cambridge right but they're not that posh yeah uh so maybe that's maybe that's not ideal the right maybe the right club is the sort of obvious one they're like a bit too old for if it was like a riot club for children (laughs) yeah like i don't know what the eaton equivalent of the bullingdon club is um but you know something like something like that that's right that's right but boris in yeah. Or if there's any movie with a sort of annoying posh child antagonist like Malfoy from the Harry Potter series. Yeah, or like Tom Brown, like sort of Flashman. But Flashman's too sort of headstrong. Everyone like... said that David Cameron was Flashman. Yeah. That was the, uh, he was always being compared to Flashman. But yeah, you know, I put that back on our listeners if you have a good idea for that. And as for the, uh, for Jay Swinson, I guess the obvious one to go with would be St. Trinian's. Uh, but I haven't seen that movie so the one I would actually go with is the film Wild Child, <laughs> um, in which a Californian teenager who uh, wrecks her house in a house party is sent to an English boarding school um, in order to learn some manners. And there's some good culture clash comedy where she rubs up against these uptight uh, English Hoity girls, hoity-toity English girls, um, who you know she teaches to sort of cut loose a little bit. Uh, it's a very good film. Really recommend anybody watch it. But yeah, I think that that you know. That, that's that's Joe Swinson's vibe. Yeah, yeah, me, absolutely. Say. Yeah. Also, going back to your posh, uh, snooty schoolboy point, like the Beano did try and sue Jacob Rees-Mogg for ripping off Walter the Softy. <laughs> they stole his. They they claimed they stole his likeness, <laughs> and also his like his personality. That's very good. But I don't know if there's no, a. But he, yeah, he's perfect. It's like he's a, he is a child as well. He's always yeah. going up as fucking nanny. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's a he had a, little, had a little, little nap because it was past his bedtime. Yeah, he hadn't had a banana and a snack or whatever, so <laughs> exactly. he had to, had to lie down. He's just a little boy. It's very weird. Why are these powerful, powerful children, children. <laughs> running running our country? It's unacceptable. Someone someone should do something about it. Someone should really ought to do something about that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think a couple more podcast episodes, and I'm gonna fucking we're gonna do something about that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tips, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's been to print. So, Richard Linklater is famous for making Boyhood, which he shot over 12 years, and he also shot the Before trilogy, which was the same characters, and he caught up with them every nine years and made a movie. And he's like, not enough, not enough, not enough of a challenge for Linklater. I need something more. So his new film, he's going to shoot over 20 years. That's right, two decades. He'll probably he'll be in his 70s by the time <laughs> the movie is completed. Um, so according to Collider, the veritable news website, uh, Blumhouse Productions and Linklater have teamed for an adaptation of the musical Merrily We Roll Along, which is a Stephen Sondheim musical, him of Sweeney Todd fame. And he's attached actors uh, Beanie Feldstein, who was in Booksmart and Lady Bird, and Ben Platt, who was in the Pitch Perfect movies, to star. So he's going to shoot a bit this year, and then he's going to shoot a bit another year, and we can expect to release sometime in 2040 it's an interesting uh concept i mean i'm all for it i do wonder about i mean yeah is it a stunt at this point you know or like is there is there will the movie is it just simply unacceptable to have different actors playing people at different ages has he been watching all these marvel movies and just been absolutely disgusted by the de-aging cgi on like samuel <laughs> jackson and he's like if you want to put this guy in captain marvel you should have made the fucking film in the 90s like i did with boyhood yeah exactly Maybe Richard Lane's approach to movies is how people make wine and whiskey these days. He's just mm. shooting 12 films right now. He'll release one in five years, or at least one in ten. By the time he's probably already been making one for about 40 years, he's going to release it on his deathbed. Like, jokes on you guys, I've been making a movie for 50 years. Yeah. And nobody will talk me. There is definitely something to the effect of that kind of um, verisimilitude. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's not unlike... That feeling when you when you go to see a play and then by the end, you know, you, you can see that the actors have been through a process physically. Yeah. So if it's an exhausting performance and they've really like wrung themselves out, then you can see that it's, you know, there's something real um, and that has an impact. Or, or, or things like uh, the one take film Victoria, where at the end of the movie, everybody's exhausted and you know that like they actually must be exhausted because you actually watch them do it. And even the person behind who's holding the camera must be tired by now and that kind of thing. And even though it's like somewhat outside the actual world the film constructs, it still kind of gives it something of the same impact. And I think like films obviously often like play with the passage of, of time and sort of evoke that uh, sense of uh, loss that you get with yeah, the past yeah, and that kind of thing. And I guess that doing it, um, doing it absolutely for real does have a certain power to it. Kind of interesting to do with a musical as well i mean like because in, in boyhood it's like the the concept is the story the fact that it takes place over 12 years and the actual contents of the of the plot of the film are relatively like um mundane but it's just the the impact of seeing somebody grow up like that like that's the power that the story has whereas this is obviously was not conceived of as that type of thing so it's like he's doing this much more ambitious concept but like i guess putting a real um, plot on top of it yeah the one he makes out of this is gonna be nuts 40 years musical set in space yeah he'll be long dead um, <laughs> about halfway through the filming of it his ghost will direct the rest of it would you think link later will do other things or is he just this is, yeah is right he's gonna dedicate himself to this now well he made like you know eight other films where he's making boyhood so. yeah i know but i feel like boyhood could have been better if he hadn't made those <laughs> and he just concentrated on boyhood like when if he brings out another movie in the intermediate time, I was like, "But you should be working on Merrily We Roll Along, mate. What are you taking time off? 
It's not. It's not enough to occupy you. What the fuck? This what is it, your job. This what about this? Right. Every film has like. It's like in a uh, Simpsons. If you get all the clips of McBain together, it mm. tells it tells an entire narrative. Like he's actually secretly filming Mary Roll Along while he's making all these other movies. That would be brilliant. And then you just cut out like five minutes of all the movies he makes, and it actually forms an entirely different film. That would be sick. That would be sick, mate. You know how like. Um, like blockbuster, like huge blockbuster films are made at like such a massive order of magnitude higher budget than like small movies. Yeah. Like when you think of it in those terms, then there is no really great risk to the studio because it's like, you know, this could simply have the budget of your average uh, mega blockbuster, but they only dole out a million a year. Yeah. yeah. And you can make the movie over a hundred years. <laughs> and it's like, that's perfectly feasible for the studio to do that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, sure. It has the budget of a blockbuster, but it's paid out over a hundred years. <laughs> So it's not really that much of an outlay. And then you, you, you got a heck of a film at the end. It's like an approach to the filmmaking that like medieval craftsmen took to cathedrals where you just anticipate the future generations will complete the it's project. It's venture capitalism <laughs> approach to... Yeah, it's, just, an, yeah, it's an investment. It's going to pay but off. everyone's going to want to see this film. Yeah, it was 100 years in the making. The beginning of the film is archive footage. Yeah. Like no one was al- who was alive <laughs> when the film comes out will have been alive when this film began to be there'll shot. There'll be a few. There'll be a few. Maybe a few. It'd be like World War II veterans. Or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's going to be great. That's going to be great. Can't wait. <laughs> I'll have to, but I can't. <laughs> That's the most painful can't wait I've ever uttered. <laughs> 24 years of being unable to wait. That's rough. Rolling British director Ben Wheatley has been skirting blockbuster filmmaking for a, a little while now. He was sort of attached to a potential Marvel movie, or there were some rumors around him doing yeah. a Marvel movie, uh, which never um, came to fruition. Uh, but he did, when he recently made Free Fire, it was like produced by Martin Scorsese. It was an action film full of movie stars, and it did feel kind of like a stepping stone onto bigger tentpole projects. Although then he immediately went and made like the smallest film possible. <laughs> um, Happy New Year, Colin Burstead. But it looks like his uh, uh, flirtation with the big time is... <laughs> he's he's is, hitting second base. <laughs> it's going to be consummated as he has signed on to direct the sequel to Tomb Raider. This is like, what, the fourth or fifth Tomb Raider film? It's the fourth. Many, yeah. The they only made two with um, Angelina and Jay Lee. So it's the fourth Tomb Raider film, but it's this direct sequel to um, the Alicia Vikander starring Tomb Raider, which was itself sort of an adaptation of a reboot of the video game which recast uh, Lara Croft as a grittier, uh, more sort of real uh, version of herself that's like less glamorous. She's more covered in mud. Sure. Um, Her boobs are less pointy. Less pointy. Less sexualized. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. Um, The uh, previous film was uh, okay. Not especially especially good. You can go back and check film chat episode whatever to to find find out what we thought of that one. But it wasn't wasn't great. Um, But... Uh, it'll be interesting to see how Ben Wheatley step, steps up to this um, uh, larger budget and see see what it does with the project. Yeah, absolutely. And his this is not that surprising news because his wife and writing partner Amy Jump was attached to write the script a few months back. So maybe he just was you know peering over a typewriter and he's like, oh, these are pretty good. Maybe I'll just direct this. Um, but yeah, I think it's it sounds like the guy who made a field in England is making Tomb Raider two. Sounds like a sort of weird headline, but. Out of all the kind of franchises, it's probably one of the better ones in terms of it's not that bogged down by law. 
mm. or like you know expectations if you see it as just like ben wheelie's making an action adventure movie starring alicia vikander it's almost like the tomb raider bit is secondary to it there like, was a bit of that in the movie which i felt like they could have jettisoned like at the very end of the film she gets this sort of iconic two guns yeah from tomb raider or whatever and i was like i don't care about this yeah and i guess he getting the sequels like i don't have to do any of the fucking setup stuff and like that's all been done yeah so it's probably like a more tempting proposition to do the sequel than the first one because i think like the main challenge as for like any such movie of this nature is to make it not racist that's probably <laughs> quite, quite a difficult thing to do sure um so, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how he tackles that problem. <laughs> um, interesting to see if he's a racist or not. Yeah, to see how racist Ben Wheatley is. But, uh, uh, but yeah, like you say, it's not. Yeah, it's not too way down. It's it could just be you know in terms of making a relatively fun romp. I think like one of the things the initial movie struggled with is making something which is both this kind of grounded and more real version of the character while also still being kind of a fun and lighthearted adventure movie aimed at relatively young teenagers. Yeah, you know, it's a bit like. Uh, I don't know, like the Hunger Games or something like that, which is like this gritty, miserable setting, but has to have the very broad appeal. But I felt like in Tomb Raider, they did not quite nail because, like, obviously, Tomb Raider itself is already very influenced by something like Indiana Jones, sure, like sure. those kinds of adventures. Um, and in a way, making it something that uh, feels more um, naturalistic jars a bit with the concepts in the first place. Yeah. So it, there are some like difficult uh, things to navigate, but. You know, yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what he does with it. I mean, do you think that his filmmaking style is well suited to um, uh, big screen thrills and spills with a larger? Yeah, budget? absolutely. And I think, like, I think he's often because he's just like the sort of guy who makes somewhat weird movies, and he's got like a beard, and uh, he's kind of sort of categorized as this kind of crazy wizard of British cinema. But he's like this super personable, normal guy. Yeah, I went to. He, he resembles. He's a bit like a sort of Peter Jackson or something. Yeah, know, like, like he's such a sort of film fan. Yeah, and I think, and I saw an interview where he talked about how much he loves like Paul Verhoeven movies. I think he's you know at home. Uh, I mean, you know, he's like likes Robocop as much as he likes Solaris or whatever. It's not mm. like this stuff is beneath him or anything. He seems like a real genre fan. But you know, I'm a, I like all his movies. They're always interesting. So. I hope the Hollywood machine doesn't eat him alive and he's forced to put in all those cutscenes from the original Tomb Raider <laughs> game. Like, you know, I think, yeah. Kill, a, kill loads of uh, wild animals for no reason, right? That was a big Tomb Raider thing. Uh, I think, um, yeah, someone who's got a very relatively chilled out sensibility is probably like a good person to take on this material. For some reason, the person I'm thinking of is like a previous, like, art housey type guy taking on a blockbuster is that um, guy who made uh, the Assassin's Creed movie. Have you made Oh, yeah, Justin Kurzel. Justin Kurzel, yeah. yeah. And it turns out that he wasn't really, like, a particularly thoughtful, he didn't seem like a very thoughtful director. He was just, like, interested in making pretty images. And yeah. then Assassin's Creed was complete shit. Um, and Ben Wheatley, I don't think, is like that. No, no. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, hopefully he'll be able to... Uh, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, do something good with that. 
And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it all scrunchingly poor? How did Danny form the judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off Okay, so Bait, this is written and directed by Mark Jenkins It's a bona fide British art house hit It's shot on a Bolex camera It's in black and white it's in a 4-3 ratio. There's non-sync sound. It's arty as fuck. It is about a fisherman called Martin Ward, played by Edward Rowe, who is this sort of glowering, aggressive guy who resents all the incomers who have taken over his village. And him and his brother Stephen have been forced to sell their late father's picturesque kind of harbourfront cottage to Londoners who stay there in the summer and rent it out to Airbnb. And the sort of fishing is in decline. And the movie is kind of like a couple of days in the life, but it's kind of about people's identity being eroded away in a sort of slight us them. And the bait is almost like how the fishing industry has given way to the tourist industry and things are becoming a slight parody of themselves. There is no clip, but here's a bit of the trailer. You get a sense of the sort of strange soundscape of the movie. You've been clamped? I think so, yeah. We've done that. Who do you think? Pricks. You own the bloody street. You can't just park there all day. It's fine you picking stuff up and dropping stuff I work off. in the arbor. I'm a bloody fisherman. Are you? Where's your boat? See you on the beach. I'm telling Mum you're hanging around with him. You live in this community. Oh, the community. So I really enjoy this movie. It's very strange, very unique, but a very entertaining film. I was sort of pleased by how uh, straightforwardly entertaining it was. It wasn't just some like weird, uh, you know, you have to be a genius to understand it. You know, it's very accessible. And a lot of the kind of critical reactions of the movie has been about how current it feels, you know, it's the film for our divided times, which I think is just the way every single film has been viewed through this lens. And it's not necessarily true because... This film uh, took years and years to make by this kind of very idiosyncratic artist filmmaker and he shot it on a Bolex camera and it's clearly like, I don't think this is a cash in Brexit. Not about, not about Brexit? <laughs> not about, well, it is like, it's an evergreen subject matter. Yeah. You know, the townies and the simple hobbit folk and the evil uh, Urukai. I'm hearing, <laughs> I'm hearing Trump and Putin. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, and I think the key to the movie's success is that it, it is very uh, tense. There's a sort of tension to everything and there's the sense that things might kick off at any point. And I was also surprised by just how kind of sharply written it was. It's a very kind of funny movie and I think maybe I was expecting something a bit weird and opaque, but if you just took the script and just shot it on HD, you know, in a, no- in a normal way, like a normal person, <laughs> it would uh, work. And, I've, and it avoids for the most part easy jokes about both sides of the argument i mean there's a few kind of digs about the sort of posh mns shopping middle class types and but for lack of a better term there's like uh, sort of shades of gray to everybody and the main character is uh, understandable but not particularly sympathetic i mean he is just a bit of a prick but you know you can sort of see his point of view very clearly i don't know if i was more impressed with it because it was shot on like a bolex camera which are like are so loud you can't record sound and they can only run for two minutes so just the fact they've made like an entire film is <laughs> you know what i mean it's yeah. like it's mainly used for like shorts and uh, artist filmmakers stuff um and it does give it a certain 
quality. I mean, like timelessness is a sort of term that's used a lot. And, and like it's a slightly, it's like the word meta or something used to apply to every movie. But there's something about the non-sync sound and the aspect ratio and the color and the way it's all processed. It's all kind of grainy. And it has this kind of weird visual grammar to it, which is, feels very, is it a bit like very all, unmodern it, about it? But at the same time, it's so on the pulse. Yeah, of, I mean, does it give you that sense of like, like watching like a Dog Made '95 film or some of that, where like the constraints that are placed on the filmmaker that you're seeing in the film are part of what's interesting about? Yeah, exactly. Experiencing it, and uh, it kind of chimes with the sort of it's kind of about people failing to communicate. And it's almost like this is like inefficient film system. Yeah, like this, this film was made on two cups connected by a piece of string. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's got that kind of vibe to it. I really liked the, the main guy, Edward Rowe. He's got an extraordinary amount of presence. I don't know if you just shoot somebody in like black and white in like a sort of square ratio and like have them do the sound afterwards. They just seem really cool and like glowering. We should try this. Yeah, and see if we can, how cool we seem. Uh, but it was he was great and like really held the whole movie together. And it's just very original and very british movie it's a real uh it's, it's a bit like ben wheatley stuff i guess like i think like british cinema we're good at social realism and we're good at period costume but there's also this kind of cool undercurrent of like weird cinema and uh it's a kind of great addition to that tradition a great addition to that tradition <laughs> get thee uh and it's also it's a just a 90 minutes very tightly plotted and i think it's just it was great you go out and support uh it, Go out and support it. Like, just go out and go out support it. Don't go see it, but just, 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 support just it. generally support it. Yeah, it's playing at a few. It's been a bit of an art house hit. So if you just Google it, there might be showing near you, especially if you live in London. And uh, yeah, it'd be in my top ten of the year. Cool. So, so yeah, that sounds great. You got to see it. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking now. Once more time in Hollywood. It's the new Tarantino film. He's one of those event filmmakers. Everyone gets excited when he's dropping a new movie. I think he might be probably the only person who's got sufficient, like, mainstream name recognition. Maybe, like, Christopher Nolan or something. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But, like, I think it, there is something unusual about hearing just, like, random people in my office saying, oh, I went to see the new Tarantino. You know, like... Yeah, yeah. He's an I, adjective. Yeah. I don't think that like, people say about anybody else. So, anyway, it's something he's obviously clearly aware of since all of his movies are marketed as the nth film from Quentin Tarantino. Uh, this one is a uh, period drama. It's set in 1969. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio stars as Rick Dalton, a uh, guy who's uh, well-known from TV and is trying to make the move into movies but hasn't quite sort of made it as a film star. And we sort of catch up with him as he's having this crisis of confidence about his own acting and his career. And his best friend is played by Brad Pitt, who is his stunt double slash general dog's body handyman. Who's squire. A butler, squire thing. He kind of does, does everything for him. And it follows them uh, and also kind of circles around uh, the events leading up to the Manson murders in 1969. Uh, including following Sharon Tate, who's played by Margot Robbie, as she's kind of like going about her day. And that's sort of looming on the horizon of the movie. And there's also the uh, the Manson family themselves, uh, Brad Pitt encounters during the film. So you can kind of see this coming. And it's this kind of 
end of an era movie about like a, a crossover period when the 60s was coming to an end both chronologically and also um, with this like climactic uh, series of murders and it's sort of a hangout film as well like one of his like slower uh, movies that you just sort of you know enjoy what these characters are getting up to here's a clip are you some old cowboy guy that used to make movies there whoa <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Surprise how accurate that description of me really is. Some old cowboy guy that used to shoot movies at Spawn Ranch. So you used to make westerns at the ranch back in the old timey days? Well, if by the old timey days you mean television eight years ago. Yeah. Are you an actor? No, I'm a stuntman. Stuntman? That's way better. Why is that way better? Actors are phony. Oh. They just say lines that other people write and pretend to murder people on their stupid TV shows. Meanwhile, real people are being murdered every day in Vietnam. So I was, I was very curious to see this film. I came to it very late. Uh, most other, I think most people have seen this movie by now. Um, and it, it got like interesting reactions. Like some people were kind of hailing it as a masterpiece. Other people seemed to be like bored by it. And I know that you uh, and Chris had seen it, and you seemed like, had, a, had a few reservations. Had some reservations about it. And I can very, I can, I can sort of see why. But I have to say, I really, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was very good. It's very long, and he's got this reputation for self indulgence. But in a way, a film which sets itself up as this sort of hangout film it's almost indulgent by nature and it's yeah, kind of tell, telling you early on that this is not a film which is going to like barrel um, along with like uh, incredibly quick scenes but it's just a film where you follow these people and you kind of uh, luxuriate in the atmosphere of it and that sort of love for the era it really comes through in the movie it's like a very unironic film and so it's sort of refreshing in that way as in that it's it's sort of like basking in the uh uh, nostalgia of the past but i think it's like quite easy to get swept up in tarantino's sort of like love for it yeah yeah absolutely yeah i i enjoyed the movie a lot but i think my biggest reservation was like the shaggy dog story aspect is like there are just some scenes which like don't quite work for me and i feel like you know he's obviously a sort of genius wordsmith and has created like the most some of the most iconic dialogue of like last two decades but there's a tendency has where like characters like these kind of back and forth where characters are constantly explaining situations to another character who explains to another character and it reminded me a bit of uh the kkk scene from django and chain which is like the sort of skit which does nothing to do with the narrative but like obviously he found it like hilarious and yeah. it's like he got like 80 people on horseback with flaming torches for this like quite lame gag about the kkk having bags on heads and i think like there's a kind of bruce lee sequence which is like kind of just goes on a bit yeah and he's loving it and i'm like um, come on quentin and like i don't know just because the rest of the movie is so enjoyable with the stuff that didn't work it just really slowed it down and then in the final sequence i don't think i was quite on board i didn't know what i was quite supposed to feel about it yeah i don't know how to put it into words about spoiling it but he's usually such a master of tone that in this final stretch, I was like, am I supposed to be finding this funny or... And I think, like, it, that kind of ambiguity would find at the start of the movie. But by the end, I'm just like, I, I don't know. I don't know. It was a bit lost. It didn't quite land. Yeah. 
I think like it's a it kind of is of a piece or it feels like a natural progression in a way. So his films have been getting a bit more like inscrutable. I think like the hateful eight has also got a slightly ambiguously toned yeah. ending. Tarantino obviously he's got these uh two particular modes of uh when he does violence, there's like very cathartic kind of pop violence yeah. which is supposed to be sort of fun to watch and then there's like really gruesome uh horrifying stuff which is supposed to be incredibly painful and i think that the clear cut distinction of that is slightly like breaking down as his movies get on yeah and in in the hateful eight that also ends i mean there's violence throughout that movie but particularly in the way it ends it's like i think quite un- deliberately uncomfortable yeah through the way that it plays with that that idea and i think there's a similar thing going on in once upon a time in hollywood it's got like i mean it, it is a movie that invites uh interpretation and i'm sure that it's very easy to say like pretentious things about it and it's maybe sort of easy to like overstate how much is going on in the film but i did think that there is something interesting in terms of like how it deals with the past and he's always come across as somebody for whom like movies are how he interprets the wider world like the film comes first and then the world comes afterwards yeah. <laughs> And this is, like, increasingly, in a way, how we were experiencing, like, very mainstream films. I mean, the uh, trailers for both Avengers Endgame and the new Star Wars movie included these, like, montages of all the previous films in the franchise. Like, they're they're all so self-referential. And uh, something like The Force Awakens or, like, Jurassic World are these films which, like, they're not standalone movies. They're not just straightforward entertainment. They're, like, evoking something else that you can't really understand or watch them without, without... uh, understanding the films that they're like semi remaking that sort of like nostalgic intertextual quality yeah, is yeah, becoming yeah. like increasingly uh, widespread throughout all movies but for some reason i think partly because of that like the way that tarantino does it which is like in this particularly self-aware and some in some ways like particularly literal way is kind of refreshing and the, the thing that the thing that's annoying about these other these other films the way they do it is that it feels like they're selling you something that they don't they're not quite that that isn't earned they're selling you this experience outside the what's actually the contents of the movie is like the part of what's so much fun about watching the force awakens is that you're getting that star wars essence yeah something that we talked about before that it's like it's empty calories it's It's empty calories it's a reflection of a reflection that rather than watching uh cowboys and samurai in space you're watching star wars yeah but like updated yeah yeah, yeah, it's it's referencing itself rather than referencing referencing something outside itself and I think with Tarantino, he's obviously always done that kind of thing of like referencing things and expecting you to pick up on the references. But I think that he is doing it in this like way, this is a very explicit way of telling you. <laughs> and yeah, it's yeah. not, there's something that feels like slightly more honest about it. And I think that once upon a time in Hollywood, it still feels like selling you this dream of the past, but it's not something, it's not like conjuring back to your own personal memories or something you're supposed to relate to on a personal level. It's more like he's inviting you to enjoy the fact that it is a dream. Yeah. It's got an unreal quality, like the whole thing. And then the way the movie ends without spoiling it just emphasizes the fact that this is a fantasy. Yeah, the title's very literal in a way. Yeah, it's a yeah. kind of fairy tale. So the mood I find really, really fascinating because it's like, I found it like quite an uneasy watch as well as being a chill hangout movie. And it's because there's this undercurrent, both because like if you're aware of the historical context, like you sort of know that there's this like event hanging over the film. It's a ticking bomb. Like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's also like a bit sort of tense. I don't know. There's like, it's very busy. Like the way that even though it's like the action itself is rather chilled out, the way that it's filmed is rather busy. There's like a scene early on where Brad Pitt just goes to his trailer and is like feeding his dog and stuff. And it's just like 
quite an intense scene for some reason. <laughs> like, you know, it's like there's loads of stuff happening. There's loads of close-ups and noises and stuff. And it's a bit like you have this sense that something is going to happen. And I think like it draws it draws your attention towards the sin- like the very cinematic quality of what you're watching in a way that is like appealing to to you to say that like it's the craft of creating this fantasy that's what's good mm. you know that it's about these people you know there's that's like this thing about tarantino uh where he famously like on all of his movies he occasionally stops and then makes everyone shout because we love making movies <laughs> it's like that's the message of the film to you you know yeah, yeah. like that love of the craft of cinema is like both the content of the film because there's all these scenes of them like actually making making stuff you know mm. <laughs> and he's very interested in like watching people make films but also like it's the the ability of movies to like sell you a dream that is that that is what he kind of loves i felt like that was ultimately what the movie was trying to get across yeah rather than the actual like rather than you know, not trying to sell you some kind of false reality but trying to sell you just the the fact of a fantasy that you cannot juriate in you know that's yeah what yeah. Wins. yeah i mean it's very it's weird because it's not there's nothing mean about the movie and i think like yeah. going in like when it's like tarantino does the manson killings it's like, oh god this could be go badly yeah, yeah, yeah. but like uh, the Sharon Tate stuff is really well done and like her sequences are probably like the nicest thing he's put to cinema Absolutely. and I think like it's um, I saw one point when someone was talking about Jackie Brown which I didn't 100% agree with but he's saying like that movie is the only time when you feel like the characters like have sex they're like kind of sexual beings and the rest is like he's quite an old school romantic like yeah uh I think the A.O. Scott review talked about how he's he's big into wives and romance, not so much like girlfriends kind of like the and flirting. Stability of relationships, is yeah. What he's invested in, yeah. And yeah, there's definitely there's it's a kind of romantic movie, and I don't know. I don't like. I wasn't affronted by the movie. I just was a bit confused by the end. Uh, there's like a, the one the nastiest bit of the movie is like quite near the end, and it felt a bit sort of tone deaf. Like yeah, it is a very. <laughs> It is a very challenging, like, ending in some ways. Yeah. Like, what the hell you're supposed to make of it. It's that combination of his, like, very sincere niceness, which is always, like, a strain of in his movies. Yeah. People just being really, really nice to each other, like, buddies. I think he kind of sees romance as, like, just two buddies as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, his sort of, like, uh, platonic friendships to male characters and, like, his romantic relationships are kind of similar. You know, some yeah, yeah. guys hanging out, just we're just cool. Um, <laughs> and uh, that is very much the note on which this movie ends but also having sort of portrayed some like really horrific stuff in this like oddly light way i yeah, don't know yeah like it's a, it's very... it's a real crash of tones in a way which kind of left me a bit dumbstruck yeah i think it's an interesting i think it's a really interesting film <laughs> I, I would kind of i would kind of uh yeah i'd watch it again i'd be interested to i would say we a second watch uh all this aside which is quite a statement all the actual what the movie means aside yeah. it's just uh I think it's a supremely well cast movie yeah like yeah, uh, yeah the performances are great like the, the kind of the roles seem a bit tailor-made for like all the movie stars like particular brand of movie stardom like DiCaprio is quite an intense dude and he's playing this insecure actor and it's just a lot of great comic foil is made out of that and Brad Pitt is just the most laconic man in the world and it just makes perfect sense as this steely-eyed slow to anger supremely cool dude yeah I loved uh, and, both of them in this film yeah yeah and uh I know there was that thing at the Cannes uh, press conference where they, the journalists asked about why Sharon Tate didn't, didn't have that much lines. But it's probably like the hardest role in the movie. It's like she's not a Tarantino character. She's like a normal person. 
she's in reality and then like these movie stars are in this movie Tarantino world mm. and eventually the two shall meet and that's kind of exhilarating there's definitely like how the hell is he going to get out of this one sort yeah. of vibe to the movie yeah 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 I mean I haven't stopped thinking about it so it must be a masterpiece something. right I don't know yeah. like I think maybe there's like a quality because it's this uh, languorous sprawling epic with a cl- with a very ambiguous tone you know, maybe it just fools you into thinking it's deeper than it is. I guess. Yeah, that's, that's what that's what I'm sort of overturning in my head. It's yeah. like, you know, are there all these random details, just red herrings, to make me think the movie is uh, is a work of like a masterpiece? But yeah, but it's fascinating. I don't know. It's the most talked about movie of the year. I think I think it's worth watching just for its treatment of that kind of the relationship between cinema and the past, and uh, and its like treatment of that sense of nostalgia, because it's much more conscious of how it's using like the past to evoke a mood than like a lot of like quite lazy filmmaking that just uses it as a shortcut to be like seem like a serious or interesting film yeah well we need to do another podcast just about this movie uh go see it in my view yeah no no i would recommend it my favorite film stars bridget bardo she's the queen but she wants to be in radio so she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end okay right. podcast over we've spoken too long about the tarantino movie we need to take another two-month hiatus yeah just to dwell on, dwell on a bit more see you guys in uh, late november cool yeah well thank thank you thank you once again for listening see you next time goodbye 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 Let's do it. Senator Mendoza is one of the most respected citizens in this state, McBain. And yet you ran his limo off a cliff, broke the necks of three of his bodyguards, and drove a bus to his front door. Mr. Kaplan, I have proved that he's head of an international drug cartel. I don't want to hear it, McBain. You're out of here. That makes two of us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.